Today from the Global Lane, cryptocurrency, a $40 trillion per year industry. Bring on the cashless society. We're living through the fourth industrial revolution. The question is, are you going to be a part of it or not? Biden's proposed tax increases, squishy Republicans, and some lessons from President Calvin Coolidge. What Coolidge shows is that austerity can be a good plan for the United States. Right-wing radicals in the U.S. military, domestic threat or myth from the left. I don't see radicalization in the ranks, but it's always good to stop and talk about it. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Pushback against the West. During his visit to Beijing this week, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov called on the Chinese government to join his country in lessening their dependence on the U.S. dollar. Lavrov suggests it would weaken the impact of Western economic sanctions against them. Meanwhile, the U.S. dollar strengthened a bit this week, but some investors worry it may eventually drop as a result of uncontrolled Washington spending and possible hyperinflation. Are digital currencies the answer? Joining us to provide some insights is cryptocurrency expert, founder of Blockchain Capital, Brock Pierce. Mr. Pierce was a child actor and former presidential candidate. He's a global pioneer in blockchain technology and online gaming. He's co-founder of the cryptocurrency Tether. Mr. Pierce, it's good to talk to you. So first, I'm sure many of our viewers know you from the Mighty Ducks, from First Kid. You've come a long way since those film days. So now you're known as the Bitcoin billionaire. Are you really a billionaire? And if so, how'd you do it? Well, um, I view life like a game of sorts. And I've gone into the options menu of life and I've chosen my own adventure and I measure my success in life by the impact I have. So a billionaire to me isn't someone with a billion dollars, but it's someone who is focused on positively impacting the lives of a billion people. And so, um, in that regard, I certainly feel like an aspirational one. And I know you do a lot of humanitarian work in Puerto Rico, but I want to talk to you today about cryptocurrencies. They've certainly taken off in value, popularity in recent years. So how likely is it, in your opinion, that we're in the final days of the dollar and hard currency, money that you can actually hold in your hand being replaced by cryptocurrency? Well, Technology is clearly changing the world. Things are definitely becoming digital and money will be part of that change. And so uh, we are at the late stage of uh, uh, capitalism and we are watching, you know, the writing is on the wall. Uh, there are some very real issues and we will eventually have to pay the piper. And, um, uh, but it's not, you know, this isn't the end of the dollar. I, I play for Team America, therefore I am supporting the dollar. I'm doing everything I possibly can to support our reserve status in the world because of the impact it has on our lives. You know, the U.S. dollar is the foundation of our economy. It is the foundation of our nation. If something were to happen to the U.S. dollar's reserve status, it would have a major, major negative impact on all of our lives, businesses, and government. And so um, I'm doing everything I can. You mentioned that I co-founded Tether. That was an attempt at digitizing the U.S. dollar, giving it the same powers as Bitcoin, utilizing Bitcoin's technology that we call the blockchain. That digital dollar is doing over $100 billion a day in transactional volume, over $40 trillion a year. 
Over 70 governments in the world are testing pilot projects to use this concept to see if you can enhance your currencies at a central banking level with technology. China is uh, a couple years ahead of the rest of the world with their Chinese digital yuan that is there to challenge the U.S. dollar's reserve status. And that's part of the reason I ran for president of the United States. It's part of the reason why I get up every day to inform our elected officials, because it is imperative that America stays at the forefront of innovation. We are, the, we are it, and let's not lose it. In India, that country is close to banning, banning all cryptocurrency. Your thoughts about that? Can we have it one day and then it's gone the next? Well, I don't think it's going to go anywhere, but um, uh, governments can clearly legislate and, and, and pass laws and make rules. And um, we're living through the fourth industrial revolution. Change is the only constant in the universe. You can't stop change. The question is, are you going to be a part of it or not? The future is going to happen to you or with you. I think India is making a very bad decision for their future, and it will impact many lives. And uh, I know why they're doing it. Uh, India has very strict currency control laws. And the reason why Indian real estate is what it is and the economy is in the state that it is, is because Indian people can't get their money out of India. I'm sure you're aware of the concerns that many Christians have about the end times, a cashless society, and cryptocurrency eventually being used against them. What do you say to allay their concerns? Well, I'm a, a man of faith. I'm a man of God. And um, I think that uh, <laughs> we're living through very challenging times. And how we transact and what we give power to uh, matters. Um, I, I'd say, where does value come from? Why does a dollar have value? Value comes from consensus because two or more people agree that something has value, therefore it does. If you're the only person in the world that believes something has value, then it has sentimental value to you and you alone, which means that value comes from belief. Value comes from faith. This is the first time in human history where we have a opportunity to choose what we give value to, what we believe in. And so I pray that you stay conscious and you are aware and you choose those things that are on the side of goodness and love because God is that. Okay, Brock Pierce, thanks for being with us, providing those insights today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. President Biden's proposal to raise taxes, the first tax hike in more than 30 years is facing stiff opposition from Republicans. Biden wants to raise the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28 percent. He also wants to increase the capital gains tax and raise taxes on individuals and couples earning more than $400,000 per year. Will Republicans cave? Our next guest says the GOP needs to heed the lessons of former Republican President Calvin Coolidge. Amity Schlaes chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. She's author of four New York Times bestsellers, including the book Coolidge. Ms. Schlaes is co-editor of the newly updated autobiography of Calvin Coolidge. You point out that Coolidge reduced the World War I budget deficit while simultaneously cutting taxes. So what was the end result? The end result was tremendous prosperity. That's the wonderful thing about Calvin Coolidge. His period 
and his theories, they actually worked. The 20s did roar. It wasn't just a bubble in Jay Gatsby's campaign glass. What Coolidge shows is that austerity can be a good plan for the United States. What happened um, in the early 20s was similar to now. We'd come through a crisis. We'd overspent. That was World War I in that instance. Today, it's COVID. And the government said, let's cut back so private sector can take over. And the private sector did take over. And in this autobiography, what you see is Coolidge's philosophy was, at, was, was good for other Americans because the private sector did help the recovery. It's the private sector that brings the recovery, not the stimulus. The country got to a happier place because of economic growth, including in terms of civil rights and racial equity. Very interesting story. Economics solves a lot for all Americans, white or black. Coolidge believed in limited government, but today it seems that government and our deficits are growing out of control. So how concerned are Republicans about that in 2021? And how likely are they to return to the ideas and policies of Calvin Coolidge? Well, let's put it this way. Margaret Thatcher did not come back until Britain had lived with the consequences of mushy conservatives. The conservatives in the UK were so mushy, you couldn't distinguish them from the Labour Party. The economy tanked, people had no jobs, there was misery and there was scant economic opportunity. Then people looked for a strong conservative and Margaret Thatcher was ready. It's sort of like that. I think today's Republicans don't really take the economy seriously enough. The um, they, they, uh, they think, well, I'll offer Democrat light. Well, that might sound all right in a prosperous period with a bubbly stock market, such as what we have now. But when the market crashes, someone has to speak up for sound budgets and uh, you know, cleaning out the economy and making room, most importantly, for the private sector. Coolidge said that the chief ideal of the American people is idealism. We're not absorbed by material motives. So do you think Americans still believe that or have we forgotten our ideals? What makes us unique as Americans? Well, they certainly believe in ideals uh, because some, some solid ideals and some goofy ideals are immensely popular right now, right? Um, but maybe what's important is to return to those ideals that our framers had which is what Coolidge did. Even if Coolidge was president in the 1920s, he really was a constitutional president. He lived, in, George Washington was near to him and Lincoln actually was near to him as well. He felt fraternity with them. He felt a close connection. They weren't just these distant figures from another era. And he, what he saw in the framers, even though he rode in a car and used the telephone and gave conference calls, Coolidge was very modern, was that they are timeless and they can be near to us no matter how high tech we are or how physically removed we are from America's founding. So what's wonderful about Coolidge is he wasn't just a behavioralist economist. He understood that markets um, are in, made up of individuals and individuals need freedom, and spiritual freedom is related to economic freedom. We're seeing an immigration crisis on our southern border right now. President Coolidge also faced immigration challenges. In May 1924, he signed the Johnson-Reed Immigration Act, so there is precedent for restricting immigration. What was his view? How do you think he'd suggest we deal with the issue today? 
Coolidge believed that restricted immigration was a good idea when the foreign population was huge relative to the the native population. The foreign-born population was high then, as it is now. And he was not anti-foreigner or anti-immigrant. He was a great defender of minorities and indeed newcomers. He said, whether we came over in steerage three years ago or three centuries ago on the Mayflower, we're all in the same boat here. But he did understand that America needed sometimes quiet periods to absorb the immigrants it had already taken in, and he believed in the rule of law. So I, I think the lesson for us today is you can restrict immigration without being racist. And Coolidge was viewed as a progressive Republican. He certainly made a difference for blacks and Native Americans. What did he do for them? What can we learn from his example? Well, thank you for asking that question. Um, for, there, there's a famous story regarding African-Americans because a fellow member of the Republican, wrote, a Republican Party wrote to Coolidge in 1924 when Coolidge was running for president said, well, a black individual wants to run for office where I am. Not a good idea, wrote the individual. And Coolidge wrote back, I'm amazed you would even say that. African-Americans served in World War I. African-Americans are citizens. Of course they should run for office. Regarding Native Americans, which were a big issue then, Coolidge believed Native Americans should be integrated into society. He did not go in the direction of creating reservations and, and sovereign nations. He believed more in integration. And looking at the record of our sovereign Indian Native American groups and their reservations, we can say maybe he was right. The updated expanded autobiography of Calvin Coolidge. Amity Schles, thank you for sharing insights from America's 30th president. The participation of former members of the U.S. military in the January 6th Capitol Hill riot has raised new concerns about the radicalization of the U.S. armed services. Congress has held hearings, and in one of his first actions as Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin ordered a one-day stand-down for the U.S. military to conduct discussions about extremism in the ranks. I want you to revisit the oath that you took when you joined the military and when you re-enlisted or got promoted. Read those words again. Consider what they really mean. And think about the promise that you made to yourselves and to your teammates and to your fellow citizens. Joining us with some thoughts on this is retired Army Chaplain Colonel David Giamona. Colonel Giamona is co-author of the book, A Military Guide to Armageddon, Battle-Tested Strategies to Prepare Your Life and Soul for the End Times. David, it's good to have you with us again. I want to discuss Secretary Austin's comment, but first, I know you counseled thousands of soldiers over your 32 years in the military, so how prevalent is extremism in the U.S. Armed Services? Well, you know, Gary, I was in the Army for 32 years. I didn't see very much of it. Our soldiers are dedicated, professional, and, you know, ready to do whatever the president of the United States has asked him to do. I really think it's a matter of leadership more than radicalization in the armed forces. So my perspective is maybe after they get out, they may get on social media platforms. But while they're in there, they're under good hands and great leadership. Well, Secretary of Austin said members of the armed services need to remember the oath that they took to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies. But that oath continues and says enemies both foreign and domestic. So I know some of those who breached the U.S. Capitol building on January 6th 
I'm sure that they did so because they believed the domestic enemies part of that oath. They felt they were defending the U.S. Constitution from those who they believed, again, were not upholding the Constitution. So where does oath come into all of this? After all, some of those involved in the riot were so-called members of the militia group Oath Keepers. Right. Oath is an extremely important part. You know, when you raise your hand in, to defend the Constitution, both foreign and domestic, you know, you're taking an oath uh, before all of your uh, officers and before your enlisted men, wherever you might be. And it's an extremely important part of what we do. And it really comes back to down to leadership within the Army. Um, I don't see radicalization in the ranks. Uh, of course, I retired a couple of years ago, but I think it's after the fact that they might get radicalized. But while on active duty, uh, I don't you know, think that really is a huge thing, but it's always good to stop and talk about it and find out exactly where you are, test your heart, test your mind. And being in the end times, as you know, uh, there's a lot of tests that's going to come to our military and our civilian population during these days. I want to get into that a little more in just a moment. But how far, Colonel, do we go with encouraging informants? Do we create a bunch of Marines, soldiers, sailors, guardsmen that are ratting out their teammates? I, I guess potentially they could be informing on every little thought, comment that's made. What kind of impact would that possibly have on unit cohesion, effectiveness? Might it create distrust and division in the ranks? I, I think that's exactly right. You know, when you go to war, you're fighting with your buddies on the left and right of you. And so trust is an extremely important. If there's someone ratting on you in that, it's going to really untangle or, you know, throw together a bunch of people who don't trust each other. When you have that, you cannot win in war. You cannot win in combat because trust is everything to your brothers and sisters in arms. Well, it seems like that's what's being pushed right now is to have them rat out one another, even just for a tattoo they may have. It seems that former members of the military are likely or more likely, I would say, to become radicalized than those on active duty. So you mentioned it earlier. How does social media play into all of this? Well, you know, social media is an extremely important part of everything we're doing nowadays. And so uh, while I was on active duty, social media, you know, commanders would look at your site to see if you were doing things you ought not to. And soldiers are instructed from day one, don't put things on social media that you're going to regret later because it could get you court-martialed or thrown out of the military. So, you know, we are very aware in the military of social media and its impact. But still, some people do get in trouble uh, over it while on active duty. But the most part, you know, they're pretty good about it. And finally, many on the extreme left have called for defunding police, abolishing ICE, limiting gun rights. Now they're targeting members of the U.S. military for the threat they may potentially pose to society, not actually for their present actions. But how does all this fit into the end times, as discussed in your book? Well, it really does. Uh, we just have to get used to the fact, Gary, that we are living in the end times. And as the Apostle Paul says, there are going to be many things happening. People distrust, love is lost, so many things going on that we're experiencing right now. But my trust is in Jesus Christ, you know, as the Lord of my life. And so we write throughout the entire book, these are ways of... of expanding principles in your life to really focus on really important things, such as the Lord being the center of gravity or the center of your life. 
and not focus so much on politics, government, and all those other things, which are important, but not as important as our relationship to the Lord. Amen. Okay, Colonel David Giamona, co-author of the book, A Military Guide to Armageddon, Battle-Tested Strategies to Prepare Your Life and Soul for the End Times. Thank you, David, for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure, sir. Yes, folks, Americans grieve with the families of victims of recent mass shootings in our country, in Atlanta and in Boulder, Colorado. But let's also be concerned for mass arrests and shootings that are continuing almost daily against protesters in Myanmar, the country also known as Burma. When the military coup against the elected Democratic leadership occurred last month, our brothers and sisters in Christ feared persecution against them would return. Guess what? It's back. The Burma Army has expanded its crackdown beyond Mandalay and Yangon. Once again, it's attacking minority states. 8,000 Karen ethnics, about half of them Christian, have been driven from their homes. Once again, they're on the run in the jungle. Here's David Eubank of the Free Burma Rangers. Somebody please stop the Burma Army. That's the number one need is security and survival. That's number one. Now, number two is food. As they get displaced, they've got to eat. They can't go back and uh, start their crops. They can't prepare for the next fields. They can't look after the animals. So the second is food. Third, once they're out moving, maybe sharing one small stream, people get sick. And so they need medicine, shelter, that's tarps, school supplies, because they're going to keep trying to learn. So those are the main things. Yes, David, somebody please stop the Burma army. So far, there's been little action from the free world. Last month, President Biden slapped sanctions against Myanmar's military leadership. But guess what? They're getting everything they need from neighboring China. It's time for the United States and its allies to get tough. China needs to pay a price for backing the Burmese military regime. So do other countries. Short of taking military action, the United States must put the word out. Join in a sanctioning Myanmar and those who aid the illegitimate government. And if you continue to enable the regime in violating the human rights of Christians and others, then you have no business doing business with the United States. Period. Tough words followed by tough action. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, MeWe, Parlor, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.